Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We are going to jump into Genesis 37 tonight, so if you want to open up your Bible, I know the last few times I was flying through a bunch of chapters, I thought I was going to do two chapters tonight, and then uh, I got to like page 10 or 11 and realized God doesn't want me to do two, he wants me to really focus in on this one, and so we are in Genesis 37, this is a kind of transition chapter. It's an introduction into the final 14 chapters of the book. It's an introduction into the final kind of stories of the book. You know, we've, we've as we moved through um, Genesis, we got from chapter 11 to chapter 12, we were introduced to Abraham. We went through Abraham's life, then we transitioned into Isaac's life. And then through Isaac's story, we learned quite a bit about Jacob and how he became Israel, and he had his 12 sons, and all the chaos of the last several chapters. And now this is technically going to be moving into the life of Jacob, but it's told primarily through the the lens of his sons. And so it is a transition statement, or transition uh, chapter, and we'll be wrapping up, uh, concluding the patriarchal period in Israel's history when we come to the end of Jacob's life. And so... um, One thing that we can remember when we're going through this is that God remains faithful in our unfaithfulness. And this has been a reoccurring theme all throughout Genesis. We saw it with Abraham, we saw it with Isaac, we see it with Jacob, and we're going to continue to see it through tonight and into future weeks. So as he continues to unveil his plan of redemption, the people that he has chosen to be a part of that plan, they continuously mess up. They continue to make mistakes. They continue to fall into sin. Last week when we were at the pastor's conference, there was a statement. I wish I remembered which of the speakers uh, said it, but it really kind of summed up the complications and the sins of these patriarchs, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that statement was, Abraham told a half-truth, Isaac told a lie, and Jacob was a liar. Abraham told a half-truth, Isaac told a lie, and Jacob was a liar. Each generation took the bad example of their father, and they fell further into their own depravity. They fell further into sin. And each of these men seemed to forget God's promises and tried to take matters into their own hands. And each of these men dealt with unbearable circumstances, but most of those circumstances they brought upon themselves through those sinful actions. And each time, God was faithful and he redeemed each one of these men. So although they were redeemed, the consequences of their choices stayed with them. Abraham was permanently separated from his son Ishmael. Isaac passed his inheritance on to the wrong son. And Jacob had 12 sons from four different women and none of them seemed to like each other very much. And I joke here because I think of guys like Nick Nick Cannon and Elon Musk, 
and they seem to be on that same path where they just have as many children as they want with as many women as they want and it's going to reap what they sow and we can see that here in this example of uh, Jacob and his 12 children or just his 12 sons. So last week at the end of chapter 35, we saw Esau and Jacob finally reunited and they were reunited with one another and then they came together and they buried their father Isaac. Then they went their separate ways. So chapter 36 gave us the genealogy of Esau and the most significant aspect of that genealogy was that the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And we see that those sibling rivalries between Jacob and Esau, between Isaac and Ishmael, uh, between these 12 even here, the sibling rivalries of each of these generations will actually remain intact all throughout the history of Israel, even some of them up to the modern day. The Ishmaelites, the Edomites, the Midianites, all of those people groups, they all continued to be a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel as a reminder of the sins of the father of the nation. So as we move into chapter 37, I'd like to be able to say that this pattern is finally going to be broken, but if you know the stories, you know that it isn't. Um, so I'm not, unfortunately, able to say that. We're going to see that they, again, fall into their own sin. They make some bad choices. And again, God is going to have to bail them out. And thankfully, his grace and mercy is enough. And, and we can right now immediately probably put ourselves in that same position where we understand and we are thankful for the grace and the mercy of the Lord because we keep putting ourselves into the same situations over and over and over again and he keeps bailing us out because of that grace and mercy or through that grace and mercy so again remember as we move through this story it's easy to be hard on Jacob and his sons and um, you know just look at Israel as a whole as a weak people but remember we're right there with them Remember that their sins, many of us deal with the exact same sins. Remember that their redemption came through the Lord, just as our redemption comes through the Lord. And so we can learn lessons, but we shouldn't point fingers as we move through it. So chapter 37, again, is this transition into the final portion of the book. Abraham and Isaac are now dead. Jacob has his 12 sons. His beloved Rachel died while giving birth to the last son, Benjamin. This is the final chapter of Jacob's story. And as I said, it's going to be told through the actions of some of his sons. But the primary focus is still going to be on Jacob and getting him and his children to where God needs them to be. Remember, all through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now into the 12 sons, the whole process is God unveiling his plan. These are just the people or the instruments that he is using. But it is God's plan that is being unveiled. So at the end of Genesis, we have a similar scene to what we had back at the end of chapter 36. The sons of Jacob are going to then gather together to bury their father. So in Genesis 50, verses 7 and 8, it says, So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. And so we'll see when we get to chapter 50, 14 chapters from now, probably a few months away, we will get to this place where Jacob is honored, and we get to a place where 
all of the children that we're going to be talking about tonight, these 12 sons, are reconciled with one another through that honoring of their father. So again, it's the redemption of, of the Lord. And we'll see just about how long it takes for that redemption to come for some of these guys tonight. Once Jacob dies, we only have a handful of verses left in the entire book of Genesis. He, he's dead, and it wraps up very quickly. It actually seems that the rest of Joseph's life is summarized into just a couple sentences, and then it concludes the book of Genesis, and it will conclude the patriarchal period with all of the nation, well, at that time, just the brothers and their families, in Egypt, and that sets the scene for the Exodus and what goes there. So moving forward, Joseph and Judah are going to take center stage as many of uh, the events are going to be looked at through their actions and their behaviors and the things that go on. We'll see some of the other sons as well, but most of the story of the next several chapters is going to be focused in on Joseph primarily and then Judah as kind of a secondary uh, character there. So in fact, Joseph is actually mentioned more than double the amount of times of his father Jacob over these next 14 chapters. So it is ultimately the story of Jacob, but we get a lot of Joseph kind of revealing that story and what happens. Okay, so again, technically, the story of Jacob. So let us begin. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. In verse 2, here is a summary verse for us. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Remember, those were the two concubines. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So Jacob and Esau have gone their separate ways. Jacob was back in the promised land. He was back in the land of Canaan, and he was waiting for the Lord to fulfill the promises he had made with Abraham and with Isaac and also with himself. This particular portion of Jacob's life is not being told through his own actions, but as I said, through the actions of his sons. So that's where we immediately went into talking about Joseph. We see in verse 2 that, again, this is the story or the history of Jacob, but then we go right into talking about Joseph. These verses are setting the scene for the events that are going to be taking place. So here is what we can gather. Joseph is 17 years old. He's shepherding with his half-brothers, and they apparently are doing something worthy of a, quote, bad report that Joseph feels obligated to tell uh, his father, Jacob. Now, commentators actually divide on this point. Some believe that um, he could possibly be in charge, that even though he was the younger brother, he had already been put in a position of kind of lead uh, shepherd, and so it was his responsibility to give this bad report when the other brothers weren't doing what they were told to or were supposed to. That was his responsibility to do that, and there's some things in the text later on that kind of lend to maybe thinking he was in charge, um, but others will argue that Joseph was just a 17-year-old tattletale, that at this point of his life, he was trying to get back at his brothers. He was maybe ignorant to some of the nuances of, of things, and, and he wasn't as holy as he becomes later on. Uh, 
but this actually highlights an important point when we are reading some of these stories. And I want to take just a minute to kind of discuss it. We naturally want to add personality and fill in some of the gaps when we come to a story like this. We want to see those character those characters develop. We want to know the ins and outs of why they do all the decisions. We just simply don't get that information in a lot of the accounts in the Bible. But by doing that, it would make things more uh, relatable, more realistic. And so I think of even movies like The Passion or the show The Chosen, where the characters are very relatable, but they may not be very accurate. And so these two depictions of Joseph, one where he's put in charge and the other where he might be just a a whiny, spoiled kid who's tattling on his older brothers, uh, the text doesn't say one way or the other. There aren't clues really indicating one way or the other. So any speculation, that's exactly what it is. It's just pure speculation. It's us creating almost the story we want to tell as we're relaying that. So these two depictions of Joseph, they're actually very, very different from one another, but they also potentially paint a very different picture of who the actual Joseph was. And so it's just a good reminder, and the point of why I bring all of this up is that the motivation behind Joseph's report is actually not the point at all. When we read the text, we don't need to understand why he gave the bad report. We don't care if he was a tattletale or if he was in charge or any of those things because that wasn't the detail that the text gave us. The point was that he gave a bad report. But that text, that, there's a key there for us to understand that and why that report is necessary is what we should then have to dig into and figure out. Don't create the story around it. Just go to what is there so we can understand what the Bible is trying to tell us. Because we're going to see that that bad report is building off of a couple other pieces of information as to show why the hatred of his brother's towards Joseph is there in the first place. So the bad report, keep that in mind, that's going to be part of it. So we have Joseph shepherding with his brothers. He's 17, and he gives his dad a bad report. From those first chunk, that first chunk of verses, that's really what we are able to, to take away as far as understanding. Then we learn that Jacob isn't actually shy about letting everybody know that Joseph is his favorite son. And he, made, he even made an amazing technicolor dream coat and gave it to his son, right? You guys remember, come on. Most of you are older than I am, and if I know, I know, and you know, you know. But he's got this technicolor dream coat that was made, and so in actuality, the Hebrew word here is best translated as a tunic with long sleeves. Uh, it would have been more, it would have more than likely been a patchwork of different color fabrics sewn together. So there would have been several different types or styles of fabric. That's where the multicolored portion would have come from, but the significant elements of this tunic are that it actually went all the way down to the wrists and all the way down to the ankles. And because this is not what you would typically wear if you were doing labor style work. Most of the tunics of the labor forces, those shepherds and working in the fields or whatever, they would have been either sleeveless or or shorter sleeves. So the sleeves didn't encumber the movement of the arms as they were doing the work, and they would have been shorter, potentially not even gone all the way to the ankles. So when they girded their loins to do work, it was an easier process, and they weren't tripping over their robes. So the the focal point of the tunic 
in addition to being colorful, was that it was not the norm for the shepherds. It was not the norm for what they would be wearing to do their work. And so there was no way to see Joseph shepherding, wearing that, and, under, and not understand that he was kind of set apart from his brothers. And so maybe there's some, some, uh, some of the hatred that we'll see from them was stemmed directly from that as well. Now, if you guys attended or watched the uh, encounter in our culture thing that Holly and I did a few months ago now, the, the one that dealt with gender and sexuality, you may actually remember that this particular word, the word for uh, the Technicolor dream code or for that um, code of many colors, has been a Hebrew word that has been latched onto by progressives. Uh, and that's because there's only one other place in Scripture where that word is used. And it's also translated the same way. In 2 Samuel 13, 18, it says, now she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. So the progressive's natural logic is that Joseph was actually a cross dresser and Jacob had given him something that culturally girls would have worn. If you remember again from that presentation, we talked about that. So instead of this technicolor dream coat, Joseph was actually giving or given a multicolor princess dress is what the, the progressives would argue. So obviously there's all kinds of issues with that ridiculousness, but the biggest one is that contextually that doesn't make any sense. The point that it's being made here and why there's the emphasis on this clothing is that Joseph was given a gift from his dad that was worthy of royalty not of a shepherd. And so when we look at, at the, the women in Second Samuel are wearing the same sort of thing, the similarity is simply that it is a, um, a robe for royalty. doesn't matter if it's male or female. It is a robe that goes to the wrists because they don't have to do that manual work. It's a robe that goes to the ankles because it doesn't have to, they don't have to do that work. And so that was the emphasis. That's the portion that we should understand. This was a robe that, like I said, completely was setting Joseph apart. And he was doing the shepherding work of his brothers, but he was dressed as royalty while he was doing it. This made his brothers angry, and it was a constant reminder that their dad loved Joseph more than he loved them, along with him just simply saying that, which the, the text seems. So it seems to be suggested here that Joseph was not only the one that Jacob loved the most, but he is also the one that Jacob intended, uh, that it, excuse me, he also intended Joseph to be his heir. So if you remember some of the past events, Reuben had forfeited his status because he slept with his father's concubine. So even though he was the, for, the firstborn, he had lost his status as firstborn. He had lost his inheritance because of those actions. Simeon and Levi had killed the men of Shechem to avenge their sister after she was raped. So they had lost their right to their inheritance. Four of these sons were from Leah, who was not even supposed to be uh, Jacob's wife. He was tricked into marrying her. Six of the sons were from his concubines, so they didn't really have the legal right there to uh, take over the inheritance. So for Jacob, Rachel was really his true 
wife. That was who he wanted to marry from the very beginning. Through all of this process of all of the other women, he finally marries her. She has Joseph. She has Benjamin. And then she dies in childbearing. And so for, from Jacob's perspective, ben, or Joseph and Benjamin, you could almost say were his only two legitimate sons. And so it's reasonable to assume by identifying Joseph as his most loved son, as identifying him with this, this gown of royalty, that his intention was to pass everything on to him. And we'll see some of it is passed on that way when we get to the end, but not everything is passed on to uh, Joseph. And so there will be some redemptions for some others as well. But this is where we kind of get. And again, it's somewhat speculative, but as we move forward, we will see that in the context of the rest of this chapter and even in the dreams and things that we're going to see, it will start to kind of confirm this line of thought. So look at the phrase at the end of verse 4. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. This was a relationship that Joseph had with his ten older half-brothers. There was no peace. There was just hatred. Whether the hatred was spawned because of favoritism or was it, was it maybe enhanced because of the, the favoritism, it doesn't really matter what spawned it or, or, again, why. The point is here that Joseph had a very tumultuous relationship with his brothers. And because of that hatred, the story could really only be driven in one direction. Proverbs 10.12 tells us that hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. And so the only way for this story to not end in hatred is for that second part, love to come and to cover and to conquer. Ultimately, again, I'm, I'm going to spoil the last 14 chapters a whole bunch tonight because I'm going to tell you some of the ending. So if you've never read the story, I'm sorry, but you'll have something to look forward to in six, uh, six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it was. So there is a point where things are going to flip and there is going to be reconciliation and there is going to be maybe limited reconciliation, but there is going to be a point where things are not driven out of hatred anymore, but they are driven out of love in these relationships. And that's encouraging for us, but one of the things that we always have to remember, and it seems with these stories and maybe sometimes even in our own lives, we have to go through it first to get to the redemption or, or to the, the reconciliation. And so we're gonna see here, Joseph has to go through some difficult stuff and he has to go through a time of pure hatred from his brothers before there can be that time of redemption. So look in verse 5. We'll keep reading. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. And they hated him even more. So he's not doing well. Anytime he speaks, he basically gets them more upset. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. 
So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph had a couple dreams, and it was clear that the implication of those dreams was that he believed his brothers would eventually bend the knee and serve him. The second dream then even included his father and mother. So later on, Joseph actually explains the purpose of having two dreams, because we, we know he had two dreams that basically were saying the same thing. But when he is in Pharaoh's court later in Genesis 41, he's going to explain that very thing to Pharaoh. He says this is why there would be two dreams. It would seem that his own dreams are actually following the same example or the same process that God would then later use to confirm that Pharaoh's dreams were actually uh, a word from him as well. And so in Genesis 41, 25, it says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in 41, 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. So Joseph was given two dreams and based on what happened later on with Pharaoh, those two dreams, while they were similar and they're trying to project the same idea, there were some differences. But it indicates that it is being established by God and that God will bring it to pass shortly. So Joseph could be anticipating these things as, as they were going to actually unhappen and unfold. He doesn't know how, and again, spoiler, it's going to be about 22 years after these dreams where they actually manifest themselves, but it is going to happen. So what Joseph understood about his own dreams isn't clear. So we don't know, he, he relays the dreams, but then the text doesn't actually get into what his own thoughts or opinions were. He's just sharing this dream. And maybe some will say he probably should have kept his mouth shut and kept it to his heart for a while, especially knowing the relationship he had with his, his um, brothers. But there's also the other side where if he knows this information, he feels that it's from the Lord and he keeps it to himself, well... By sharing this information, he's setting up an opportunity for them to repent, for them to seek God, for them to get in line with God's plan. Unfortunately, we know that that doesn't happen in the beginning, but so it's back and forth. Should he have said what his dreams were? Should he have kept quiet? That's something for theologians to argue about somewhere else, but we don't need to worry about it here. We know that he did open his mouth and he did share them. Uh, the dreams with his brothers, and that, that grew their hatred for him even more. And then at the end of verse 11, so we see that, that Jacob is rebuking him. He questions him. He says, you think even your mother, and, or your mother and I are going to bow? But notice at the end of verse 11, he says, but his father kept the matter in mind. And you get the impression here that Jacob gave a public rebuke but he had dealt with God enough to understand that God does speak through dreams. He had even spoken to Jacob through his own dreams. He had spoken to Abraham and Isaac through dreams. So there is something there that he was pondering, that he was thinking about. If nothing else, Jacob's own family tree demonstrates that the elder would serve the younger. Think about the, the relationships. Isaac was... Uh, given the inheritance, and, and he was the child of promise, not Ishmael. 
Jacob here instead of Esau was who the inheritance was being passed on. So there is a reasonable idea that Joseph, being one of the younger brothers, could very well be the one that would have everything. And again, he's already indicated that he loves Joseph more than the others. So this could almost be for Jacob a confirmation from God. But again, not wanting to upset everybody else, he rebukes Joseph publicly, and then he's pondering these things. And I think that we see Jacob taking this serious. He understands that dreams are very serious. He displays a similar behavior here to what Mary did when she was visited with the angel and told that she was pregnant while still being a virgin. And what's that, that account say? It says she pondered these things in her heart. Well, that's the same attitude that Jacob has here. He's taking this to, to heart. He's, he's understanding kind of maybe some of the, the undercurrent of what's actually going on. But he doesn't really let that on to his, uh, his other sons. So then one last piece of information regarding these dreams. I've said in the past, when I've gone through some of these chapters in Genesis, that that Genesis and Revelation are closely uh, related to one another. That in fact, virtually everything that has its beginning in Genesis will come to a conclusion in Revelation. They they could almost be read side by side uh, as a a beginning and an end, because they are. So here in this second dream we see a pretty important key to understanding one of the figures in Revelation 12. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. So we hold the view that this woman in Revelation 12 is symbolic of the nation of Israel, and we point back to this dream of uh, Jacob, or excuse me, of Joseph, where that symbolism is actually explained. So in this vision, we see that the sun and the moon represent Jacob or Israel and his wife, and the twelve stars in the in Jacob. Or man, I keep saying Jacob and Joseph, mixing them up. Joseph's dream had eleven stars because he would have been the twelfth one. But so in the the point of the twelve stars in Revelation twelve, those are the twelve tribes, and so we can look all the way back into Genesis and see this symbolism explained. So by the time we get to Revelation, we understand, and there shouldn't be confusion over who that woman of Revelation twelve one is. It is a symbol of the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of people that argue that it's the church or it's something else entirely, but if you stick with what the text is saying, it breaks it down and gives us a very clear depiction of what that is. So Joseph reveals his dreams to the family and then everybody gets upset. So verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Verse 15, now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field and the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. There, uh, here, we see a scene change. 
We don't know how much time has passed from the time that he shared his dreams. We understand that the relationship here is kind of uh, still tumultuous. Um, we understand that there is like, still all of the same people involved. But those ten older half-brothers of Joseph, they're tending Jacob's herds, but they've moved up to an area in Shechem. And Shechem, again, is where um, they avenged their, the rape of their daughter, or excuse me, their sister. And so Shechem has some history there. We don't know why they went there. We know once they got there, they moved on. And so Shechem's about 50 miles north of where they would have been staying in the Hebron Valley. And then Dothan is another 17 or 15 miles or so. So Joseph is on this journey as a 17-year-old kid um, by himself, more than likely, to go find his brothers 65 miles away. So Jacob wants a report, so he sends Joseph this multi-day journey to a group of half-brothers that hate him. So we ask ourselves, what could possibly go wrong in that circumstance? But see, in this circumstance, and it was in this circumstance that we actually saw God working. Jacob wasn't aware of God's plans any more than we are uh, for God's plans in our own lives. But he had come to a place where he understood that God was moving and that his responsibility was simply to remain faithful while waiting on the Lord. And this is where we need to be also. We need to understand that God is active. He's active in our life. He is working through each of our lives. So whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, they are part of his plan. They may not be a part of our plan, but they are definitely a part of his plan. So we know the next events of Joseph's life. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But listen to what the Psalms say about this particular time in Joseph's life. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 25. The psalmist writes, Moreover, he called for a famine, he being God. He called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. To bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom, Israel also came into Egypt and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So this journey could have been handled by a servant of Jacob. It could have been anybody that he sent. But God's provision was for Israel. And he was setting something up that even Jacob didn't understand. For Jacob, he was just sending his son to go figure out what's going on with the others. For Joseph, he was just simply following orders. For his brothers, we'll see when they see Joseph coming, they seize an opportunity. They are thinking that they're going to do something to, to um, prevent the dreams from being fulfilled. But in actuality, we know their actions are moving in process for those dreams to actually be fulfilled. And so while nobody is aware of it, God is working through this entire process. And he's setting up here what the psalmist said was a man going before them, a man to be in that position, in that place. So when those 
the drought and the famine and everything came, there was provision to take care of Jacob and his sons. So God was working it all out for good. So for us, the challenge and the encouragement here would be that we need to let God use us for his purposes. We need to stop demanding to know all of the details. We need to stop asking God why all of the time and just find comfort in knowing that God wants to use us for his purposes. We can get so caught up in wanting to know what he's teaching us or what blessings we're going to receive or what step B and C and D are going to be. But how many times... Do we have to come to the realization that sometimes what he is doing in our lives has nothing to do with us, but it has to do with somebody else? He's working something out in somebody else's life through you and through what you're going through. But if we're so hyper-focused on ourselves, which our culture tells us we're supposed to be, we start moving in front of God. We start demanding things from God instead of just understanding he wants to use you. So let him use you and find the joy and the comfort in that regardless of the circumstance. Whether we look at our circumstances as good or bad, he is working, he is moving, and he is using you in a powerful way. Verse 18, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So if you know the events of Joseph's life, you know the big reveal at the end is that what the brothers of Joseph intended for evil, God intended for good. We've been alluding to that already, and we know that this, this plan here is forming, and they are thinking that they're thwarting those dreams, and again, they think that they're cutting off Joseph and his arrogance and anything else, but what they're intending for evil here, God is setting up, and he's using it for good and, and for amazing things um, that they aren't even aware of. So Joseph's brothers are angry and are filled with hatred. So as he was approaching, wearing his colorful tunic, the opportunity to finally take care of him once and for all was at hand. So they started to hatch this plan. Hatred and envy had taken such a hold on their hearts that they were willing to end Joseph's life. They were so worked up about his dreams and even the possibility of them coming true that they felt that they had to respond in this manner. Reuben appears to have a bit more heart. Maybe it was because he was the older brother. Maybe he understood some of the details. Again, we don't know. We only know that he responds on Joseph's behalf and that he did not want to kill Joseph. So we don't know the motivation there, but we do see that Reuben convinced the other brothers to throw Joseph into a pit or a cistern 
without killing him. And then we also see here that his intention was then to sneak back after the brothers had gone away, rescue Joseph, and send him back to his father. So he wasn't fully on board with this, but we do see a almost covert operation with Reuben. He wasn't willing to just confront his brothers and say, no, this is wrong. Instead, he's like, I'll go along with your plan. That sounds great. Let's change it a little bit. And then his plan was to come back and and undo it all later on. So he could have avoided some of this if he would have just stood up for what was right from the very beginning. So Reuben was going through these motions with his brother. He wasn't standing up for what was right. He wasn't trying to mess up what the other brothers were doing or what they felt. He was seemingly caught in the middle. He was wanting to please his brothers, also wanting to ultimately please his dad. I don't really know if there's any actual love towards Joseph or if it was just kind of a a brother versus dad idea on Reuben's heart there because he's he's included in all the brothers that don't like Joseph or, or show hatred. So, but he's going to intervene. So uh, verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So while Joseph was in the pit, his half-brothers sat down, and they ate lunch. And we see in chapter 42 that Joseph pleaded with his brothers and that his soul was in anguish while he was in the pit. He wasn't sure what their plan was, but at that moment we can see that Joseph was hurting and he was alone. He cried out to his brothers, people that he thought he knew and that he could trust. People that should have had his best interest in mind, but they had completely turned their backs on him. Joseph's brothers had betrayed him. A commentator uh, uses a quote here. It says, a, f- a physicist could compute the exact time required for his cries to go 25 yards to the eardrums of his brothers. But it took 22 years for that cry to go from the eardrums of his brothers to their hearts. So they sat there and they ate lunch as he screamed from the bottom of the pit, asking to be freed, asking for them to spare his life. And they sat there and ate and could care less. 22 years later, when they're in front of Joseph and and he reveals to himself or to them who he actually is, that was when that repentance finally hit. 22 years. So there will be reconciliation for Joseph and his brothers But 22 years had to pass. How much time was wasted? How much relationship did they lose out or miss out on? 22 years, that is literally 
like Liam's entire life. Right? He's not in here, he's in there, but he still heard it. So, But 22 years wasted. And instead of that 22 years of, of relationship with brothers, it was a 22 years, a literal lifetime of sin and separation. So here in verse 26, Judah plays a more prominent role. This is the first time we actually really hear of him as he revises the plan. Instead of killing Joseph or letting him rot in the cistern, Judah decides that they should sell Joseph to some of the traveling merchants that were passing by. So we don't know if Judah is the savior or if he's just money hungry, but it is it's like, do we celebrate him for it or do we, no, all the brothers were wicked. They were all doing stupid things and they were all impacting Joseph's life. So yes, he didn't kill him, but he still sold him as a slave, anticipating they'd never have to see or hear from him again. And then we'll see they'll continue the lie with their uh, father. So Judah spares Joseph's life by selling him for 20 shekels of silver. And so in this instance, with this story, my mind always goes to Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In both of these instances, the payoff, the value placed on another person's life is very minimal. 30 pieces or 20 shekels. Oftentimes, our sin makes us selfish and prideful. And so we're willing to remain in our sin to follow it through to the end with a little payoff. Think about the sins that you've committed, maybe even sins that you dealt with today. What was the payoff? What was the purpose of those sins? How did you convince yourself that sinning was the right course of action? Was it the false promise of feeling good? See, sin never feels good once you've carried it out to the end. Maybe you committed a sin against another person, like we see here with the brothers. Getting revenge or putting someone in their place, it never satisfies the root is always a sinful behavior. The Proverbs 20, 22 says, don't say I will avenge this evil. Wait on the Lord and he will rescue you. See, sin, we'd like to complicate it, but it isn't really that complicated. What causes us to sin? Selfishness and pride. Our feelings lead us into sin. We feel we deserve something or we feel that somebody was mean to us or hurt us. And so our sin is generated by those feelings. And really that's it. The sins that we commit can all be tra traced back to how we feel in a particular moment. And this is why the Bible places such a great emphasis on not reacting out of our feelings. Our feelings will lead us astray Every single time. Jeremiah 7, 9, you guys know this verse. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? We are to cling to the truths of who God is and what he is doing. If you know the rest of this story, Joseph ends up being exalted in Egypt and ultimately saves his brothers and his father from famine, fulfilling the dreams that he had had. But if his brothers would have gone back through their own lives and listened to the promises that God had revealed even to them, to their father and to their grandfather, they would have known the blessings that were to come their way. This is what we're supposed to do. 
When we are given the opportunity to sin, instead of listening to our lying hearts and to our feelings, we're supposed to remember what God has already done for us. Cling to the truth of his word and cling to the truth of his actions. And here's the, little, the dirty little secret about sin. Our emotions, our heart, they'll tell us that if we sin, we will feel better. But we all know that that feeling is a fleeting feeling. You might put someone in their place, but then you feel guilty. You might find pleasure or enjoyment, and then after the fact, it's filth and shame. We make a mess of things, and then we turn to God to fix the mess that we created. But he tells us that there's a better way, and that, that way is by surrendering our wicked heart to him. We must repent. We must turn away from this sinful behavior and turn towards God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Joseph's brothers were being driven by the hatred and the deception in their own hearts. The payoff was small, but to them, it was worth it to be rid of the problem that had become their brother Joseph. Reuben, again here, we see wasn't present when this event unfolded. For some reason or another, he had gone, and then when he returned, he realized that Joseph was gone. He tore his clothes, which indicates that there was actual true mourning on uh, the behalf of Reuben for his brother. So look at verse 31 as we wrap up this last uh, portion here. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave or into Sheol to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And then uh, verse 36, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So there's a running theme this goes throughout the entire life of Jacob. Remember at the beginning I said this statement, Abraham told a half-truth, Isaac told a lie, and Jacob was a liar. Jacob had spent his life lying to get ahead, and now he was reaping what he had sown through the actions of his sons. The next level of this theme is interesting because many of these lies actually center around clothing of some sort. Jacob deceived his own father by using the skin of a goat. He's deceived here by his own children through the coat of many colors, again with uh, animal blood on it. And then in the next chapter, Jacob's son Judah will be deceived by the clothing of Tamar, and we'll get to that story uh, in a few weeks. But so Jacob had established a culture of lying within his household that brought chaos and division. His family did everything they could to tear themselves apart, but again, by the grace of God, they were preserved. So Jacob mourned for his son and refused to be comforted by the rest of his family. And then chapter 37 introduces us to the person of Joseph. 
Joseph is significant in Hebrew history because God uses him to get the tribes of Israel into Egypt where they could grow and flourish and then eventually prepare to finally move into the promised land. But Joseph is even more significant for us as Christians because we see him as a type of Christ or a symbol of Jesus. See, there's many parallels in the lives of Joseph and Jesus. As we go from now through the rest of uh, his story over these next 14 chapters, some commentators have actually created lists, and some of those lists contain over 100 parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. Here in this chapter, there were a few of them. I'm not going to go over all of them, but just very briefly let you understand the most important idea was that Joseph was not received by his own. His own brothers rejected him. Instead, he was betrayed and he was sold and his clothing was removed and that piece of clothing was desired by others. Those are all parallels with the life of Christ. John 1.11 tells us, speaking of Jesus, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But then verse 12 goes on to say, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And this is what I was speaking about earlier. Many of you know this, but this bears repeating. We are all fallen sinners. We are unable to escape the consequences and chaos of our own sin. But God did provide a way for us to escape. He provided his own son to take the pain, the punishment, and, and the burden of our sin. The Bible tells us that if we, we receive Christ, we can renew our hearts and our mind, and we can flee from our sin and from our temptations. John talked about becoming a child of God, and in Romans 8, Paul tells us that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are literally adopted into God's family, and we are considered to be co-heirs with Christ. <coughs> You see, the power to overcome a life of sin is not something that we can ever obtain for ourselves. It's only obtainable if we turn to Jesus. He will free us from the bondage of our sin. See, Joseph's brothers had the answer to their pain and hatred. They had it the entire time. They chose not to receive it. We have the answer in our own or to our own pains, to our own trials, to our own tribulations. But the question that each one of us is always forced to ask or to answer, that we have to answer on an individual level, is simply, will you receive it? Will you receive him? Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. But each one of us, we have to make that choice for ourselves. So for some of us, that just simply means that we repent and we come back to Jesus. We've been walking with him for a while, and there's a challenge, and there's a struggle, there's a sin, whatever it is. Repent, turn away from it, come back to him. For others, it might mean we receive him for the very first time, and that you understand that the life that you're living and the way you're going isn't going to get you anywhere but into more chaos and more pain and more suffering and that you're in bondage to your sin. Jesus is the only way. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, 
you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.